Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. So I'm so fired up that Rob is with us today. Give it up for my buddy, Rob Brown. Thank you, Tim. You know, uh, he said it in the first service. He, he pointed out that I'm kind of a large guy, uh, you know, big in heart, big in body. And I am a person who kind of believes when I walk into the room, I'm going to be the biggest guy in the room. Well, man, I walked into this room today. Cross got some big people in it. I tell you what, I, I feel at home among you people. I really do. But for many years, I literally thought, you know what? When I step into a room, I'm going to be the loudest, most passionate, most loving, most contagious follower of Jesus Christ that I can possibly be. And for many, many years all over the world, I pulled that off. I really did. I walked into a room, and there was nobody more passionate than I was. I walked into a room, there was rarely anybody bigger than I was. I walked into a room, and I thought for a moment there was nobody that just oozed love and excitement about what God is doing in this world and in this place and that place and in those places than me. And then I met Tim Cash, and I kind of adjusted my goal a little bit. Now I've decided... Any room that Tim's already in, when I walk into it, I'm going to be the second most passionate. I'm, I'm the second most good looking. The second most uh, just oozing with love person in the room because you've been around them enough. I've been around them enough to know that uh, if you're not authentic, then you can't pull it off as well as Tim has for as long as Tim has in the arenas that he's done it in. So, Tim, your passion for the Lord, your passion for others, for the gospel, for this church, for the church universal, it's contagious. I'm a better version of myself as a result of walking with you of late, and I, I really do appreciate that. Uh, who am I? To some of you, all you know is what he said, a little bit more information I'm a 53-year-old guy who's been around the world 27 times, but started just down the road on the south side of Atlanta, graduated from Greater Atlanta Christian High School in 1987 with uh, a desire and a belief that I would be playing in the NBA one day. Uh, about six minutes into my first college practice at Lipscomb University in Nashville, I realized I will not be playing in the NBA one day. I'm going to be lucky to be able to play here for the next four or five years, actually. So kind of an interesting thing happened uh, after I... After I my basketball career was over. It was kind of time to be honest with the Lord about something. Uh, when I was in ninth grade in Houston, Texas, during a youth rally, he put on my heart the idea of being a messenger to the nations. And that's all I knew. But I was married to a basketball at that time. I thought it was going to be my profession. It wasn't that, but it ended up paying for college and made friends for a lifetime and got to see the world a little bit. But those seeds were planted in my heart as a ninth grader. And then once the ball quit bouncing for me in the spring of 1992, it was time to be honest with God about something. And I had a chance to go on a mission trip to Latin America, spent a couple of months down there. I had studied Spanish in undergrad, so pretty good in the language. And then two weeks, in two weeks, it'll be 30 years since I got the phone call from a guy whose name was Bob Brown, actually, who had uh, kind of mentored me while I was in Venezuela that summer. He said, what are you doing this week? This was literally November the 11th of 1992. I said, well, I'm getting ready to move to South America, you know, to be with you. He said, let's go to Siberia. November of 1992. Uh, not too many people we know had been to Siberia at that time. If they had, they probably hadn't come back. But I was single, had no debt, no job, no girlfriend, and was just pretty much waiting to move to work with him in Venezuela. So when he invites you to Latin America, you say, yeah, I mean, invites you to Siberia, you say, yeah, I'll go. 
So four days later, I land in Siberia, and I'm there with Bob and another small group of people for about two weeks, just kind of seeing what God's doing here, trying to decide, what is it that we need? Do we need Christian schools? Do we need pastoral training, church planters, you know, sports ministry, leadership development? We needed all of it, but what are we going to bite off first? And after two weeks, we came back to the States, and I went to the elders at my church who had commissioned me and ordained me and sent me off, and I said, brothers, I got to be honest. I said yes to God in Venezuela, but I think that yes is about to take me to Siberia. And they asked me why, and I said, literally, that's why this theme resonates with me so much. I didn't say this in first service, but I said, I think I see the Acts chapter 29 unfolding in front of me. And... Like the story of the church, it was born in Acts, you know, in Acts, in the book of Acts, but I felt like its second birth, at least in Eastern Europe and behind the Iron Curtain, was happening, and I got to see it. 1992 was less than a year after all of that started. I got to be there, and I told them, I kind of want to be a part of the Acts chapter 29 story in Russia, and they were kind of funny. They said, good. We were never excited about that Venezuela stuff anyway. We're really glad you're going to Siberia. When do you leave? So six weeks later... They bought me a one-way ticket. I still can't figure that out. A one-way ticket to Siberia, and that has led to the last uh, 30 years now of either living or working in, in that part of the world. Also, our ministry works in the Middle East and in, in uh, Southern Africa now, too. But I'm that guy who leads that ministry. I'm also married to a wonderful woman named Tracy. We'll talk about her a little bit later. I have three amazing sons, one of whom is sitting beside Caleb Cash, who's an amazing friend to my amazing son. That's Aiden. I have another son, Benjamin, who's 23, uh, uh, Nate, who's 20, and then a daughter, Anna, who's 15. Uh, I'm a son to uh, Nancy. I am a brother to Philip. I'm a member and an elder at the campus church uh, in Norcross. The title that I carry is the president and CEO of Youth Reach International. But I really need to be honest and just say this. I am a hopelessly addicted but as of a year ago, this coming Wednesday, satisfied forever Atlanta Braves fan. I just have to go ahead and say that if you're going to call me who I am, that, that, that's part of it. Those other things are titles. That last one gets right at the core of kind of what I'm, what I'm about uh, <clears throat> when I'm not passionate about uh, our ministry, which for many years I was a church planter in Russia, and, uh, and I love church planting. I believe in it mightily. Now I'm kind of on the side of partnering with people who plant churches to care for orphans and at-risk youth in these communities, particularly right now, my friends, in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And somebody asked me after the first service, what's that like? And I, I can't describe the torment that I and my family and our ministry has been in since February 24th when that war started. I, try, I described it to somebody over here earlier like this. Imagine that you were adopted into a family with three brothers, three biological brothers. They all came from the same mom and the same dad. And one day, and of course they squabbled from time to time, and one thought they were better than the other and so on. But one day the biggest brother turned on the smallest brother and just started beating the snot out of him. And then the next brother stood with the big brother and turned on the youngest brother and just added to it, and it didn't stop. That's what I feel like the Youth Reach International family has been and still is going through as a result of the war that started on February 24th. On March 3rd, through some very strategic and just God-ordained relationships that we had on the ground, we were able to evacuate 34 orphans out of the eastern part of Ukraine, get them all the way across uh, Ukraine, get them to the Polish border on a bus across Poland into southern Germany where they have been safely housed and clothed and educated and taken care of. 
uh, since March 3rd, but they're in a tough time right now. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about what tough times uh, do to us, what they show us, what they reveal in us. And these kids, uh, 32 of them now, between the ages of 6 and 18, they're in a real tough chapter right now. And my job in our ministry right now is to inspire our team to fulfill our mission. And our mission at Youth Reach International is to create mentoring communities, like for those kids that are in Germany now, and kids that are in Ukraine and Russia and Belarus and Lebanon and Zambia and Zimbabwe. Create mentoring communities that care for those kids and that see three main things happen in their lives. The first one is spiritual development. That includes evangelism and discipleship, maturation so that they can multiply themselves. The second one is positive role models. That's what we call mentors. We don't mean pen pals from America when we say Andre in Russia needs a mentor. We mean Andre needs a mentor in his own country, in his own language, in his own uh, society, in his own culture that can walk with him through life with, because, due to the absence of a parent or a, or a big brother or and sometimes just a caring adult at all. So mentoring is the second part of that vision that our ministry carries. And the third part of it is practical life skills. Uh, my son Aiden is... Uh, headed to trade school next year to be a uh, heating and air conditioning um, technician. And uh, he and uh, he and Caleb have some kind of plans to, uh, to work together in the future, and that kind of excites me. That really does. As Aiden goes to uh, Lanier Tech next year, I have to re be reminded that not one thing that he knows about heating and air conditioning came from me. Uh, it skipped my generation. It really did. I'm not sure what I've taught Aiden, but I know it's not, it's not HVAC for sure. But you know what? Aiden has had other men in his life who've spoken into him, given him space at their table, spoken into his life, shown them, modeled for him some of the things now that he's, that he's moving in a, uh, in a direction for as a career. And that's what our uh, third part of our ministry tries to do is to teach practical life skills. Sometimes it's in the form of a job. Sometimes it's just discovering what their own gifts and talents are, these orphans that I'm talking about. Sometimes it's learning how to solve conflict with someone you disagree with without turning it into a fistfight. When an orphan already has about this much margin in life to make mistakes out in, the, out in society, and then that orphan starts solving every problem with, with fists, the margin that they have just disappears. The one job that you got, you're never going to get again. The one open door that you had, you're never going to get again. So we think that practical life skills is teaching them to do things with their hands, identifying some of their skills and talents, and also uh, teaching them how to, how to live in a way that uh, parents would have normally taught them, but these kids are without parents. Today, uh, that Acts 29 idea is still kind of unfolding, and I know it's something we'll hit on here as we, as we talk a little bit more, but today, Pastor Tim has us in Acts 27, and I tell you, it's for such a time as now, literally, that he's invited me to be with you today. The Acts 27 narrative is an exciting one to read, but it's a tough one to live. Most of it is hard, but let me focus on a few verses that have absolutely turned me inside out of late. Uh, starting in verse 21 of uh, Acts chapter 27. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Oh. Last night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Last two verses. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Verse 26, nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. 
This passage kind of has everything I dislike in life. Hunger, discomfort, a storm, some scolding, fearful people, some bad news, and a loudmouth offering me unsolicited advice. With its chaos, its angst, and its confusion, though, Acts 27 might seem far off and extreme to some of you right now. And it might seem like, welcome to my world for some others. Speaking of chaos and angst and confusion, if I may be super, super vulnerable with you for a moment, the last two months have been two months that I and my family won't soon forget. The war that started between these countries and nations and Christians that we know and love on February 24th, that was hard. February, March, April, May, June, July, and half of August were pretty doggone hard. But on August 20th, I uh, fell off of a ladder in my front yard. And you've been wondering, is that dude missing a tooth? Yeah, he's, he was missing a bunch of them, but now he's only missing one. Fell off of a ladder in my front yard and, and hurt myself. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I had a certain kind of handsomeness about me until that, that loss with gravity. Uh, I am struggling now to retain that sense of handsomeness. I really am. And every once in a while, there's this phantom whistle that comes out of my mouth too. And for a guy who speaks a lot, that's kind of hard. So if you hear it today, just ignore it and pretend like it's not there. But I fell off a ladder on August 20th. On August 26th, I had surgery to start putting my mouth back together. On September 6th, Tracy, my wife, had an MRI in Athens to address some weeks-long pain that she had felt in her left shoulder. On September 8th, those MRI results came back. And based on those results, I had to cancel a very fun trip with my oldest son to Seattle to watch the Braves play the Mariners. On September 12th, we went to see our oncologist. And the urgency with which the oncologist moved pushed us to more tests. On September 14th, two days after the oncology visit and tests, the largest European hornet's nest that Northwest Exterminator's wildlife team had ever seen is removed from the wall in our bedroom. Oh, it's only September 14th, my friends. <laughs> on September 15th, given that and some other things, I had to cancel a ministry trip to Lebanon that had been planned pre-pandemic. Had to set that aside. On September 16th, there were more tests for my wife. On September 24th, our family's annual auto insurance was due. I have four kids. On September 25th, right here in this room, I got to meet John Smoltz with a missing tooth. That was hard also. I really want to present myself better than that. Three days later, on September 28th, my wife Tracy is diagnosed with cancer again for the second time in 12 years. On September 29th, the next day, we share that diagnosis with our kids. On October 14th, a ministry trip to Germany, Poland, and Ukraine to visit some of our refugee kids in those countries had to be canceled. On October 20th, a sideswipe hit and run occurred with my wife Tracy and our daughter Anna over in the Hamilton Mill area. This past Monday on October 24th, Tracy finally had the surgery that we knew she needed to have. And on Tuesday, she came home. And it's been a pretty good week so far. It really has. Amen. Like Paul and those men on that ship, I and my family have had many a uh, we're not going to make it thought over the last couple of weeks. I admit it. I own that. Many a moment the last few months, I have seen what is in front of me without seeing the unseen within me. Then something happens. Something happens like Tim and Barb Cash invite us over to their house for a visit. 
a friend who is also going through cancer blesses us with a gift too sweet to even describe what it is. Our kids demonstrate a depth of faith and grit in their character that amazes us. And best of all, every day we see that it really is true. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Suddenly, suddenly we start thinking, actually, we might make it. And we will. We are making it. By God's grace, I can say that, and I do say that. Though far from perfect, we can be and we have set our hearts on being faithful amid these and all of the storms of life. We're faithful to trust when we cannot see. We're faithful to be honest about our good times and our bad times. Definitely, we will be faithful to continuing joining God where he is at work in our world, serving orphans and marginalized populations in some very difficult places around the world. We can't be perfect on this journey, but we will be faithful on it. That I know. My late college basketball coach at Lipscomb University in Nashville was a man named Don Meyer. Coach Meyer only saw me play one time in high school, and I think he regretted that for the five years that I was in college, because I had a really great game up in Cherokee County, and that was the only night he saw me play, and apparently he thought I was something that I was not. So after that game was over, offered me a full scholarship. I signed that bad boy before he could change his mind, and poof, my goal since sixth grade, you know, free education, college scholarship was taken care of. Uh, the day I showed up at, uh, at uh, basketball camp, four days after I graduated from high school in 1987, I showed up and Coach Meyer looked at me and he goes, I thought you were taller. That's all he said to me till Christmas that year. So never really knew where I stood with Coach Meyer until my junior year. One time during basketball practice, Coach blew the whistle, stopped, and when he blew the whistle, he wanted you to turn and look at him. I had the chance one time to be a practice dummy for Coach Bob Knight at Indiana, Coach Knight and Coach Meyer were really good friends. Coach Knight was in Nashville doing a seminar, a coaching clinic at Vanderbilt. Due to NCAA rules, he couldn't use his own players or Vanderbilt's players, but he could use Lipscomb players. So <laughs> that was fun. We got to be Coach Knight's practice dummies for two hours. When Coach Knight blew the whistle, we all turned and looked at him. And there in Memorial Coliseum on the Vanderbilt campus, he cussed us up one side and down the other for staring at him when he blew the whistle at us. He literally said, don't yell it. Don't look at me while I scream at you. This was a different world for me. Coach Meyer kind of had us trained a different way. When the whistle blew, we turned and looked at him that day during practice, and it was silent. And he had a Denver Broncos baseball cap on. He tipped the cap back to where it was kind of just barely on his head, and he said this quote, You know, guys, the team is always better after I cut somebody. And Rob Brown, you might help us get better today. That was a precious moment. It really was. That's all he said to me pretty much since that comment about I thought we thought you were taller than that. Coach had a way with words. And some of those words were double-sided and double-faced kind of like that. Still don't know what he meant by that. Uh, he didn't cut me, thankfully. He had to put up with me for five years. Wasn't much of a player, but I was a great teammate. I really was. So if he always thought if you cut me, you're going to lose all these other guys, so you can't let me go. But one day, Coach said something that I still believe, and I, I, I practice this. As a matter of fact, the Brown family's feeling this right now. He said, guys, nothing builds unity quite like shared suffering. And you think about that. Just your reaction lets me know that that's true as a church, as a community, as a nation, as a family, as a business, as a team. Nothing builds unity quite like shared suffering. One day, Coach said that to us. He said, nothing builds unity quite like shared suffering, and I'm about to create some suffering. So for the next two hours, that's what he did. He, uh, he made us suffer, and we became a better team. 
In Scripture, you know, we, we can't hide from this fact that we're promised. We're promised that it's going to be hard sometimes. James chapter 1, it lays out such a sober picture of what the journey as a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like when James said this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Apparently, perseverance matters to God. It sure come in handy with my family and in my life the last two months. It came in handy our first winter in Siberia after we had just moved to Russia with a 15-month-old son. And for 38 straight days, it was 35 below zero or colder. You start to question your calling. Venezuela sounded pretty good as I was living through that time right there. It's held my family together as we watched my sweet father wither, wither away from Alzheimer's disease. It got us through the first time my sweet wife and my kid's mom, Tracy, had cancer. And it's going to play a key role in getting us through this time as well. Perseverance matters to the Lord. We're going to struggle. That's part of the journey. After all, there's a battle going on. If we believe that, then we understand there's going to be a struggle. There's an enemy at work in our world. Our souls and the souls of our neighbors and our family and our coworkers and our countrymen and, and, our, and the stranger and our classmate, all of our souls are in play. It's a battle, and we're going to struggle. Let's just make sure that we struggle well and I also think it's good to struggle together. One of my favorite professors in graduate school, Dr. Galen Van Rienen, struggled mightily when he was a missionary in Africa to learn the Swahili language. And the Swahili language is just the common kind of business language or popular language of East Africa. He had to learn Swahili so that he could then learn Kipsigi. So for him, he, he said, I barely speak English. How am I going to learn these other two languages? His... Uh, his struggle to learn these languages were real. And his teacher, an older African man, told him one time this, Galen, you are not my smartest student. Sounds like Coach Meyer talking to me, kind of. Galen, you are not my smartest student, but you are a man with a why. Therefore, you will find a how. Lives lived on mission and lives that can stomach, and dare I say, even embrace struggle, because missional lives are lives lived doing the things, of God, the things that God is already doing. That should be our aim. Paul could endure the storm because he saw the unseen. He was committed to joining God in what God was doing. Paul had a reason. He had a why. Therefore, he could find a how. The cross church in Loganville has a why. And it's living out its how right now. I and my family have a why. And I hope you and yours do too. Once you have that why, it's truly just a matter of finding the how. And as we move into the second part of this time today, Tim's going to lead us through some of those practical how things. But I said earlier about my stuff, and I don't dare say that thinking I'm the only one going through hard times right now. They seem big to me because they're mine. But I know, I know in this audience there's, I know there's more maybe than not that are doing some very hefty lifting in life right now. So I've already had a couple of you come up and say, we've been praying for you and your family the last couple of weeks. That means the world to me. If I could, let me please pray for you right now as we, as we move forward into this, into this study. Lord, before I shut up and sit down, I humbly, humbly pray that you will give comfort to those that are in this room, Lord, who need to know that you're not unaware of what's going on right now. And not only are you not unaware, you are not unable to meet them in their moment of need. In fact, Lord, you stand in their, their, the very moment of need, their very moment of fear and concern right now. You're there, you see it, 
It's not lost on you, and you got this. Lord, none of us will be perfect, but may we be faithful. May we find the why, Lord, and then may we work with you, with the Holy Spirit, with each other to figure out how. We love you, Father. We praise you and thank you today and always in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, give it up for Rob, please. Good brother. Incredible brother. Let me build on some of uh, the thoughts that Rob was sharing. I love how he's captured, even in his own life, the last couple of months. And uh, I felt so privileged that he would reach out and share uh, even what was happening with Tracy, even before they shared with their family, for Barb and I to be able to pray with them and just to, to walk with them and literally... We've walked together, not just through life, but we put our shoes on and went for a walk to process together. Because when you go through turbulent times and tough times and times of suffering and uncertainty, it's so good to have somebody to walk with sometimes. Somebody that will just listen to you, love on you, and just let you verbalize so that you might be able to internalize some of the chaos that you're experiencing in the moment. We all need that. Acts 27, as Rob said, it reads like a, a suspense novel. It's action-packed. It, 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 it's a crazy read when you dive into it. When you read it, Paul has boarded this ship. He's headed toward uh, Rome. He's headed toward Italy there. Uh, God has promised him that you're going to stand before Caesar Paul is a captive. He is a prisoner. There's 276 people on the ship from what the scripture says. You've got the captain. You've got the crew. You've got other prisoners. Paul's sidekick, Luke, that would write the book of Acts with him along with a few other friends. And then you've got this guy by the name of Julius who is uh, the centurion in charge of all the prisoners on board. They set sail. God has said, hey, man, you're going you're gonna to stand before Caesar. You're going to take the gospel to Rome. They set sail, and as soon as they set sail, they start to encounter a lot of disastrous storms and weather. It is a very, very hard trip. Acts 27.10, Paul warned Julius and the officials of the danger ahead, saying, man, I believe that there's going to be trouble ahead if we keep going, shipwreck, loss of cargo. There's going to be danger to our lives. But the crew decided, hey, man, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. And I can promise you when you read the story, the decision was disastrous. You ever felt like God was telling you to stop? You ever felt like something happened in your life and you were supposed to tap the brakes, but you're like, man, I got to keep going. I'll never forget, I rolled my ankle my freshman year in college, and it still bothered me for years, even till this day. I mean, they make fun of my ankles. You got bad ankles. Well, I got a bad neck. I got a bunch of bad stuff working, if you will. But I'll never forget, 
we had moved over to the Decula area, and I was like, man, I was into this running at the time. I was doing some 10Ks and different things, and I'm like, I'm going for a run today. And I was all fired up, and I take off, and I'm, I'm not even a half mile into the run, but I'm going into this curve. And as I'm going into this curve running, I look across the street, and I see this pit bull, and I'm like, hmm. And I didn't recognize that he had like a leash, and he was hooked up to a chain. All I saw was the dog, and I took my eyes off the road, and I'm looking at the dog, and there's traffic coming toward me, and I hit the side of that asphalt, and when I did, my ankle rolled bad. And I was so mad that I'd roll my ankle. I was so mad that the dog was chained up, and he really wasn't going to get to me. And so I'd jump up, and i start to limp along, and then i make this brilliant decision. I'm not going home. I'm going to keep running. And I run and lightly jog and struggle about another 150 yards down the road further from home, and I'm like, you are a and my ankle started swelling and I'm like man I gotta take my shoe off I gotta take my sock off oh god my foot hurts so bad my ankle hurts so bad and I'm gonna keep going and that's what was happening to this crew here I mean I'm telling you if we keep going there's gonna be disaster the storm is brutal and they encountered this severe storm, hurricane force winds, even if you study the scripture. And so controlling the vessel, the ship was impossible. The storm raged for 14 days. Even the text says you couldn't see the sun or the stars for 14 days. You would go, man, that's a nasty storm right there. That's a very violent storm. And they concluded all is lost all is lost. We're going to lose our lives. We're going to lose the ship. We're, we're dying tonight. And they were desperate to survive. So in their desperation, even to survive, they started getting rid of cargo. They even released the lifeboat. It's like, man, this is a suspense novel here. What's going to happen? Are they going to make it? What, what's up with this story here? And I would, I would encourage you right now just to stop with whatever you're going through. Rob talked about his story. Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. You're struggling so bad. Stop. And I want you to hear me loud and clear that God knows exactly what we need when we encounter the various storms of life. Wherever you find yourself today, whatever you're going through, your God is faithful, your God is dependable, and your God wants to see you through whatever storm you're facing. And even more than just seeing you through it, God wants to redeem whatever storm you're in today for his glory. you got to trust him. you got to learn to press into him. You pick it back up in verse 22 as Rob was sharing. Paul called the crew together. Hey, man, you should have listened to me. I told y'all, you should have listened to me. You ever had that conversation with anybody? Rachel, I told you, you should have listened to me. Benji, I told you, you should have listened to me. I told you, you should have never left Crete. I told you, you should have never moved over there. I told you. It's almost like Paul was like, I, I, I told y'all. You would avoid it. You would have avoided all of this damage and loss. But take courage. Even though you didn't listen to me, none of you are going to lose your lives. Even though the ship will go down. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Last night, an angel of the God that I belong to 
And I served this God, stood beside me and said, don't be afraid. You're going to stand trial before Caesar. God in his goodness, he's going to grant us some type of safety. Take courage. I believe God, I believe God is going to be just as he said. Let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me say this to you. I was talking to my son Benji about 10 days ago, and I was sharing with him. I said, when you teach, when you preach, when you communicate and have a chance to open up the word of God, there's three targets you want to hit. Is what I'm sharing biblical? Is what I'm sharing doable, applicable? And it's what I'm sharing transferable. You think about that when you read Scripture, when you ponder Scripture. A lot of people are good with the information and the education and even uh, the inspired, uh, deeper learning of a text, but there's no application to it. When you teach to change lives, you want it to be biblical, doable, and transferable. This text, if you extract from it, is saturated with great application, if you will. How do you weather storms? How do you navigate through storms? Even as Rob said, based on his own life, yielding to Christ, hearing the call of God as a ninth grader, taking off after college and, and moving to Siberia. Praise God. God called Rob to <laughs> Siberia. But people on mission for God are not exempt from experiencing storms. And I think oftentimes we conclude that I, if I yield and I surrender, God's going to rescue me or free me from all this trial and suffering and pain. Paul knew that danger and difficulty and incarceration and imprisonment awaited him, but he, he believed that God was going to be with him. He knew where to place his faith, his confidence, and his trust. And I would challenge you to say, we must do the same. We must believe that we can place our faith and our confidence and our trust in the Lord that he's going to anchor us no matter what we're going through. Three simple principles. Three simple principles. I would tell you, expect storms to happen. As you do life, I would say, you need to expect that storms are going to happen. You're going to have, at times, financial hardship. You're going to have times where you are going through sickness. You're going to go through times of troubled relationships. You're going to go through times where you're betrayed, where you're rejected, where there is major heartache. I can promise you this. As a person who lives in a fallen world that is saturated with sin, as you shared, even before you baptized your daughter, we live in a fallen world. You cannot outrun storms. I had to realize that. I can't outrun them. I've tried to dodge them, but I can't outrun them. But what we can do as we navigate through these storms, is to believe that the power, the presence, and the perspective of God is available to us. That's what God is trying to show us. Storms will come. But when a storm comes your way, it is nothing more than an invitation from God to get deeper with Him, to grow in your faith, to grow in your boldness, to grow in your dependence, to grow. Storms are an invitation for us to seek God. 
The enemy wants to turn the storm upside down, and he wants your perspective to, to be, woe is me, because he's out to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take you down. But if you would view whatever you're going through today, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's fun, and I'm not saying that when we deal with adversity and uncertainty, that it's always like, ah, our first go-to is consider it joy. Even as Rob quoted James 1, like our first go-to is usually not, oh, well, praise the Lord. Ain't this good? It's usually like, all right, Lord, you're going to have to help recalibrate me. But if you woke up every day saying, God is with me, God is for me, God loves me, and I am going to face some storms possibly today, it would change your mindset. I'm going to have flat tires. I'm going to have engine trouble. I'm going to get rear-ended, side-swiped. Those kind of things happen in a fallen world. Stomach bug is going to hit. Cancer, one of my friends this week diagnosed with cancer. You got it. I was so fired up a few years ago. I'll never forget, right after we came out of COVID, I'm like, praise God, man, we're, we're back, we're at it, we're having church, man, we're rolling. I had gone through that COVID junk, man, it jacked with me. We roll into Easter, we're having a Saturday night service, we're having two Sunday morning services. I mean, there's so many people on campus, couldn't wait to share the gospel. Come over here Saturday night, lay the word out. It's like, man, what a great night, go home. And at about 11.30 that night, I felt like Rocky Balboa was just wearing me out. And whatever the stomach bug was, it hit me. And I was up for about four hours that night, and I felt, oh, terrible. And Barb goes, so what are you going to do? I'm going to go preach here in a few hours. I'm not going to get around anybody. I'm not going to associate with anybody. But the stomach bug's not going to take me down. I'm not going to quit. But you're a pastor and you're a minister and it's Easter weekend and you're sharing the gospel. The stomach bug hit me and the stomach bug was hitting other people. Guess what? You're going to get the stomach bug. Don't throw the towel in. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be on a mountaintop one day and you're going to be in a valley the next. All I can say is to allow the Lord to redeem your story wherever you're at. Allow the Lord to step into your space. Sometimes storms will come into your life when you're doing things right. Sometimes storms are going to come into your life when you're really seeking the Lord, when you're really praying, when you're fasting, when you're giving, when you're serving. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're exempt and immune from facing storms. And the, the quicker you can get there, the better off you're going to be. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world, the amplified version, I like the way it reads, you will have tribulation and distress and suffering. In this world, let me make a promise to y'all, there's going to be distress, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be pain, there's going to be all kinds of this. You're going to face it, but, 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 don't throw the towel in, but be of good cheer, be courageous, be confident, be joyful. I've overcome this world. This world is not your home, you're passing through you're here to walk with me and glorify me. I got good news for you, Tim. Storms don't last forever. 
You don't live in a storm. Storms, even for Paul and these guys, lasted about 14 days. You're going to go through storms, but I'm developing something in you in the midst of the storm. Even your pain, suffering, heartache, whatever, it's going to happen, so expect it. Second principle I would share, even as I contemplate this, is that storms, especially for the believer, it reveals our faith, it strengthens our faith, it exposes who we are. When you go through a difficult time, whatever it is that you're going through right now, storms reveal, storms expose, but storms can be used by God to strengthen us. Circumstances don't make you, they just reveal you. What's inside of me as I go through adversity and uncertainty and storms What's inside of me is going to leak out. What is my response to the storm? What is my response to this adversity and pain that I'm going through? And then you've got to stop and, and, and start to consider, when I go through storms, whose voice do I listen to? Whose voice do I gravitate toward? Whose advice am I seeking what action steps do I normally take? What has been my track record as I go through storms? Julius, initially, he listened to the commander and the owner of the ship. Uh, here he is, and hey, hey uh, the captain said, and the head crew who's been on boats a lot and who have weathered many storms said, they say, keep going. That makes sense, right? Because you've got Paul, who's a tent maker by trade and who is now a prisoner by position. We're not listening to you. You, you don't have the wisdom and expertise. But after the storm hits, he humbled himself and, and, and showed to have more wisdom to say, no, 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 Paul, what, what, what did you say? What, what did you say? Because listening to human emotion and so-called experts is not enough. People were panicking. Most people were losing hope. And let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me say this to you. Let me say this to you. Whose voice are you listening to today? In a variety of areas of things that have happened. Whose voice are you listening to? We were lied to two and a half years ago. We've been lied to a lot. But we were lied to two and a half years ago when Flip Flop showed up on the platform on media and said, trust the science. That person who tells me to trust the science better be trusting God. He better know how to listen to God. He better be plugged into God. Because I'm going to tell you right now, even the captain of the ship and this crew that were supposed navigational experts through the waters. They didn't hear what was going on. It was the man of God. It was the man of God that God had raised up to be on mission. It was the man of God who was plugged into God that heard from God that was giving wisdom. You better make sure that whoever's voice you listen to, whoever you go to, for advice, whoever is speaking into you, they better be listening to God. I don't trust the science, I trust God. I don't trust it. Unless that man representing it has really pressed in and knows the Lord. 
Whose voice are you listening to? Paul listened to the voice of God, and the Lord gave Paul a promise Hey, I'm going to be with you, and I promise you the outcome's going to be okay, but it's going to be disastrous. I mean, you're going to weather it for a while. The prophetic word, when you face storms, where do you lean? Who do you seek? Whatever storms we face in life, God has promised that he will be faithful, that he will provide His protection will be enough, even though you might lose everything in the process. Man, we lost it. Went through a storm and we lost our house, we lost our car. But you didn't lose your joy and you didn't lose your salvation. We all go through stuff, man. It's so tough. God exposes us in the midst of the storm. That's the takeaway for me. If I'm talking to someone else that is going through a storm, oftentimes I will look and say, so, so, Sandra, what is the Lord teaching you right now? What is the Lord showing you right now? How is the Lord revealing himself right now? And I guarantee you, if you talk to Rob, even with what they've gone through, even from a family standpoint, what is God showing you? What is God teaching you? How has God exposed you in areas? What is God wanting you to learn during this time? And as you start to walk it out, God is like, hey, hey, stop, stop. I got you. And you might die tomorrow. I might die today. I got you. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. I'm going to lead you. Third observation principle would be this. God will use storms to reposition us. When you go through storms, when you go through adversity, when the storm is over, I will not be in the same place I was when the storm storm started. I can promise you when storms happen, storms move ships, storms move us, storms reposition us. Storms will bring us to a different place with a different perspective. And God has a way, my brother, to reposition us when we go through adversity. Paul was brought to a new place, if you will. It was more than just a geographical place. It was a place with greater influence, greater authority to speak truth. And the storm was nothing more than an invitation for the gospel to go forth because that's what God had promised in Acts 1 verse 8, that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And God will oftentimes use these storms and these, this pain and this turmoil in our life. And what I wrote in my notes was this, the people realized that this God that Paul spoke about was the real deal. It wasn't about Paul being elevated. It was about the God that Paul worshipped being elevated. Do y'all not hear that this God I serve, this God I belong to, this God that I worship was kind enough to send an angel to speak to me? What y'all going to do with this God? Y'all didn't know what to do with that storm, but I'm just pointing you to what you're going to do with my God. What are you going to do with God? And we get exposed in the process. When David faced a giant by the name of Goliath, 
God repositioned him. The nation of Israel was shaking and this little shepherd boy goes out to battle. His brothers make fun of him. Saul tries to outfit him in Saul's armor. And David is like, I'm not going with that. Slingshot and a few rocks. And here he goes. And God is a result of what David stepped into this storm. God repositioned him. And he would become a great warrior and a great king. Yes, he would jack some things up. But he would repent, get his life right. And God, I'm telling you right now, he will use uncertainty and adversity at times to say, I, I want to reposition you. And you've heard me share so much over the years of personal story, but I promise you when I memorize Philippians 1.12 that your circumstances will turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. Tim, you thought you were going to pitch. You thought you were going to play. Tim, you were moving up the ranks. You thought you were going to make it to the big leagues. Tim, I'm going to reposition you. You're not going to be on the mound. You're going to be in the locker room, and you're not going to hold a baseball, but you're going to hold a Bible. And, and you're not going to be getting people out. I'm going to use you to try to get people into the kingdom. i got to reposition you. And God does that for us. I'm going to reposition you. And if you hang on and hold on, ah, but I got this scholarship, and I'm going to be a D1 basketball player, and I'm going to be the next Bill Walton, and I'm going to go to the NBA. That's where I was. That's where Rob was. And God goes, let me have it. I'm about to reposition you. For my glory, I'm about to blow you over here. Oh, I'm going to Venezuela. I'm about to blow you over here, bro. You better pack different for this trip. <laughs> Your little shorts and tank top ain't going to make this journey. I'm about to reposition you. And when you step into it, it's like God goes, hey, I want you to just focus on me. I want you to press in to knowing me. And, and trusting me, I want you to hold on to my word when you go through times of suffering. I want you to allow me to transform, transform you. I'm going to reposition you a little bit right now. Okay. I'm going to reposition you. But in the process, I'm going to create deeper hope, stronger character, and the pillars of perseverance that I'm going to establish inside of you are going to be stronger than ever before. Now, come on, stay with me. It might not look glamorous to the outside world, but stay with me. Do I believe that God knows everything that every one of us needs for the journey that we're on today? I believe that. And so your struggle is going to be, in the midst of all the uncertainty, adversity, pain, whatever, am I going to repent and yield and surrender to Christ or am I going to keep trying to make it work on my own? If you try to make that storm work on your own like they did, one, they could have avoided it. But two, once they got into it, what, what can we do to save our lives? And that was the wrong question. God was trying to get them to a place to say, what are you going to do with me? I created the winds and the waves. 
where, where are you going to place your trust? You're going to place it in Julius and the crew? Or are you going to place it in the God that Paul serves? Who, where's your trust going to go today? And so I pray that you would yield and repent and surrender it to the king.